The ocean's floor, the seabed, is filled with minerals, copper, nickel, and cobalt, the very raw materials that high-tech companies use to make electronics and batteries. So it seems like fertile ground, literally, to mine and exploit like the ocean's gold rush. So last month, world leaders gathered in Kingston, Jamaica, to hash out the future of deep-sea mining. For years, the International Seabed Authority... That's the organization in charge, has been trying and failing to put together a set of guidelines for deep-sea mining. Many countries, indigenous groups, scientists, warned that opening the seabed up for business could devastate the deep sea and all the critters that live there. Yet after a few weeks in Jamaica, the ISA adjourned without an agreement and decided it will revisit this debate next year. So why is this decision so hard to reach? And if deep sea mining is given the green light, what's at risk? Here to talk us through this is Dr. Diva Amen, marine biologist at the Benioff Ocean Science Laboratory that's at UC Santa Barbara and director of the nonprofit Species. Joining me from Trinidad and Tobago, welcome to Science Friday. Thank you so much for having me, Ira. Dr. Amen, it feels like this kind of came out of nowhere. Why the rush to make a decision? Well, it actually hasn't really come out of nowhere. Deep sea mining has been talked about for decades, and it's really sort of waxed and waned in interest. But we are seeing this real uptick in interest right now because in July 2021, the very small island developing state of Nauru from the Pacific they triggered this obscure rule, which we call the two-year rule. Once it's triggered, means that the ISA has two years in which to put in place rules, regulations, and procedures for mining. And if not, Nauru and their the company that they're working with would be able to potentially submit an application for an exploitation license. And at least that's how they interpreted it. So that's really led to this real acceleration of the conversation and this real rush to try to get things in place. Hmm. I love the sound of the birds in the background. <laughs> <laughs> you were actually in Jamaica where these meetings were happening. Can you give us a little flavor of what's on the table there? What is being or was being negotiated? Yeah. So, I mean, it was a three intense weeks of negotiations. And what took up most of the time was trying to go through the the exploitation rules, regulations, and procedures to try to get those closer to adoption. We are very far away from being able to agree or adopt these regulations, but states are working towards that. There were a few other things that happened at the session that were really important. So we're seeing resistance growing to this rush to mine the deep sea. And in fact, we saw five more countries, which brings the total number of countries to 21 that are calling for a precautionary pause or a moratorium or a ban on deep seabed mining. And the other main thing is that there was tabled a discussion about the protection of the marine environment because the International Seabed Authority, they have two mandates to promote deep seabed mining but also to ensure the protection of the marine environment. And those may seem at odds with each other, right? And what happened was that debate was completely blocked by a series of countries, largely China. And that led to essentially that conversation being pushed 
to next year and no conversation around this really, really important aspect. Now, let's talk about what actually happens during deep sea mining. What's going on there? So what we're seeing right now is potentially the rapid, unrestrained expansion of mining into the deep sea. And this could cause significant damage to near pristine and important ecosystems across enormous scales that have never been seen before. So some of the impacts include from the mining process include the direct removal and destruction of seafloor habitats along with the unique fauna that live there. This mining process will create sediment plumes that are like dust storms that could spread the impact of mining much further beyond the actual mining footprint, perhaps for tens to hundreds of kilometers. And there'll potentially be contaminant release that could work its way into the food chain or affect animals in another way, as well as increases in noise and light that have never been seen before. This will result with certainty in biodiversity loss and ecosystem degradation that could damage ecosystem services, such as the ocean's ability to regulate our climate, the ocean's ability to provide food to billions of people around the world, and so on. And I think what's really scary about this conversation is the scales that we're talking about. So in the area where there have been the most exploration licenses granted by the ISA, 18 licenses, industry projections are to mine 500,000 square kilometers. We anticipate that the impacts could spread for 6 million kilometers cubed. And it's not just the spatial scales, it's the temporal scale. Life in the deep sea is really slow. Animals move slowly, they grow slowly, don't reproduce often, they live to very great ages, and that means they're really vulnerable to disturbance and extremely slow to recover. And recovery will potentially take millions of years because that's how long the nodules that they want to mine in this area will take to reform. And so essentially we're looking at irreversible damage over enormous scales. If we make mistakes and rush into this, things aren't coming back. Mm. So what do you make of the argument that we need deep sea minerals to help us move towards greener, cleaner energy? Does that not balance out somewhere? So I would say that's a completely false argument. Uh, Mining the deep sea to solve the climate crisis is like smoking for stress. You're causing long-term serious harm for very little short-term gain. The ocean is our greatest ally in the fight against climate change. It absorbs heat. It sequesters carbon, a lot of which is most of which is in the deep sea. And if deep sea mining does occur, it's not going to get up to commercial production scales for the number of metals that we need for decades. And we need these minerals right now. So there's a real mismatch there. And the last thing I'd say is that, you know, we have seen enormous innovation in battery technology just in the last decade. We are seeing battery companies actively moving away from using cobalt and nickel, the two main minerals that are being sought after in these deep sea areas. And so it would be entirely irresponsible, in my opinion, to open up this new frontier of massive, irreversible exploitation and damage for something that we may not actually need in the near future. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the people who would be most affected by 
deep sea mining? Who would they be? So many of the impacts will be most acutely felt by ocean-dependent people. And ocean-dependent people are often those, for instance, in small island developing states or in coastal areas. And that's often a group that already doesn't have a voice and is already the least represented in these negotiations and is already disenfranchised in some way, just like we're seeing with the climate crisis, just like we're seeing with the pollution crisis, just like we're seeing with the biodiversity crisis. There's a real question of equity in this conversation for two reasons. There's these minerals are called the common heritage of humankind. That means they belong to you, Ira. They belong to me. They belong to everyone on the planet. They belong to all generations yet to come. And so all of the benefits from potential mining need to be shared equally. And that's not something that's easily done. There still isn't a mechanism for that to take place. So we cannot say with certainty that that will be done effectively. And the other thing is that much of the deep sea mining, the companies that are raring to do this, those are in economically developed states. And they're going to see the most benefit from this. And other developing countries, coastal states, small and developing states, those are going to be further disenfranchised because of that inequity potentially. Is there some pushback also from potential uh, users of these minerals that, that need them, but maybe they're saying we don't want it coming from the deep sea? There is so much opposition, Ira. I mean, it's states, we've seen 21 countries come out saying no mining right now. We've, cut, we've seen scientists and marine experts. We've seen companies, potential downstream users of these minerals, like Google, Samsung, BMW, Volkswagen. Have, many of them have come out and said they commit, have committed to not using deep sea minerals. Indigenous groups, the UN Commission on Human Rights, recently the seafood sector, they know that they stand to be impacted severely from this. Mm -hmm. I know you've been down to the deep sea. Do you think if more people could see it, that then there, there might be some more pushback against the deep sea mining. Tell us what you saw down there. I would say absolutely. I mean, the deep sea is this remarkable reservoir of biodiversity. Hundreds of thousands of species, things from Dumbo octopus to Yeti crabs, to sharks that are able to glow in the dark, to corals that can live to over 4,000 years, sponges that can live for over 10,000 years. I mean, when we went down to the CCZ, I remember one of the first times we touched down on the seafloor. The CCZ is one of the areas where mining may happen. And there in front of us was this anemone-like animal with eight-foot-long tentacles just billowing in the current. Oh, wow. <laughs> and in many of these places where mining may happen, from the science that's been happening there, we have been able to say that over 80 Usually over 90% of the species we are coming across are brand new to science. And I'm talking about thousands of species, Ira. I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today. This was fascinating. Thank you so much for having me, Ira. Really glad to chat about this topic. Dr. Diva Amon, marine biologist at the Benioff Ocean Science Laboratory that's at UC Santa Barbara and director of the nonprofit Species based in Trinidad and Tobago. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. If one day deep sea mining does get the go-ahead, it'll likely kick off in the Clarion-Clipperton zone. That's a flat stretch of the ocean floor that reaches from Hawaii all the way across the Pacific to Mexico. But what could that mean for Hawaii and native Hawaiians? 
Joining me now is Solomon Pili Kaho Ohalahala, chairperson of the nonprofit Maui Nui Makai Network and current Native Hawaiian elder of the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument Advisory Council. He's joining us from Lanai, Hawaii. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you very much for having me, Ira. There's a story on the Environmental Justice Foundation website with the headline, Harm Done to the Ocean is a Direct Attack on Our Way of Life, and it is your story about deep-sea mining, Solomon. Please explain what that headline means. Very simply, um, we have a creation chant in Hawaii that's called the Kumulipo. It was uh, translated into the English language by our last reigning queen on the day that she was overthrown by the U.S. military and imprisoned in her own room. But the creation says that we come from the deepest depths of the ocean in the, the matter that's at the, the ocean bottom. It's called the Vale Vale. And in the energy of the Vale Vale is created the first creature. And that creature is the Uku Koa Koa. For us is the coral polyp. And then it says that all other creatures are then created in the vertical water column of the deep sea, moving upward into the near shore areas, finally onto the land, into the hillsides and the mountains, and even taking flight in the air. We, the people, we are not ushered into this place until it's in balance. And then when we are brought into this place, we have the responsibility as the people, as, as humankind, to now care for those that precede us. And so we see that everyone that precedes us as our ancestor, our kupuna, and it takes us all the way back now to the first creature, which is the coral polyp. If that is so, then what this action of deep sea mining does, it actually intrudes into the very essence and the place of our creation. And by doing so, you are disrupting the place that is creation itself. What would you like to see happen by next year? I mean, when the International Seabed Authority meets again? We have participated as observers in the ISA meetings in Jamaica. And one of the things uh, that are real clear is that the, the consideration of our cultural connection to the deep sea is something that is very of uh, unfamiliar and even foreign to the body. The only thing that the ISA has that's uh, related to a cultural connection to the deep sea is what is termed as underwater cultural heritage. And in the definition of that, uh, it defines underwater cultural heritage as anything that's uh, tangible. So an artifact like a sunken ship or perhaps uh, human remains that are underwater. Our culture is in ways, many ways, intangible. So it's not something that you can hold like an artifact. So the, the ISA has uh, yet to consider the inclusion of other perspectives of, of culture. So you don't feel that you were well represented in decisions about deep sea mining there? Not at all. Our political history is such that when the Hawaiian Islands were overthrown by the United States, our queen was deposed. And what it did was that that action removed Hawaii as its own independent kingdom uh, to be a participant in the, the Assembly of Nation States. Therefore, Hawaii does not seat uh, itself in the United Nations. It has no seat at the Assembly of the International Seabed Authority, and it has no voice at the Council of the Seabed Authority. 
And I like to think that uh, there's a vacancy there, a vacant seat, and that we need to be the one to represent the voice of that seat because of our political history that's still yet unresolved. And also to uh, say that the United States does not have a seat at that table as well, because the United States did not ratify the, the Treaty of the High Seas. It does not have the ability to have a seat at the table for the assembly of the International Seabed Authority and the Council of the Seabed Authority. So we are not represented at all by the United States. So we want to be able to uh, represent our voice as the people of the deep seas. Thank you, Solomon, for sharing these views and filling us in on this. Mahalo. I appreciate this opportunity, and I hope this has been helpful for others to, to see our connection to the deep seas. Solomon Pili, Kaho Ohalahala, chairperson of the nonprofit Maui Nui Makai Network and current Native Hawaiian elder of the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument Advisory Council, joining us from Lanai, Hawaii. We recorded that interview last week before the series of wildfires that tore across Maui and the Hawaiian Islands, killing dozens of people and destroying homes and businesses. Our thoughts go out to the people of Hawaii, and we will continue to follow that story.